All right, Luke chapter number 1 tonight. Luke chapter number 1. Well, it's the Christmas season. And uh, I'm not one much for Christmas sermons. I was talking to my wife about that the other day. I love every part of the Word of God, but there's certain portions that we enjoy preaching from more than others, it seems, as preachers. But tonight I want to preach a message out of Luke chapter number 1 that uh, I guess chronologically would be equivalent to where we're at. It's not Christmas quite yet, but we're getting close. And in the first part of Luke chapter number 1, it's not Christmas yet, but you're getting close. And uh, I want to begin reading in verse number 5. And most of this is going to be context, but I want you to get the context so you understand where we're at when we get down to verses 16 and 17 is going to be our text tonight. The Bible says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now pay extra close attention to verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, that is Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want you to underscore in your mind that phrase, to make ready a people prepared for for the Lord. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father, bless your word, Lord, not for my benefit nor for my glory, but do it in such a way, Father, that only you would gain glory out of the message tonight. And I pray if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, only you know the human heart, that you'd show them their need of Calvary and of the precious blood of Christ. One amongst us, Lord, that's not consecrated to you, has not committed their life fully in submission I pray that tonight would be the night that they would wave the white flag of surrender, Lord. They would kneel themselves before Your throne and that they would give their all to You. Lord, if You don't accomplish these things, they're not going to be accomplished. So I ask You, Father, to do these things tonight. And we'll be sure to give You the praise and honor and glory that is due Your name. We ask these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. We read the passage in chapter number 1 and verse 17 and emphasized the phrase to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What does that phrase mean? There could be a lot of discussion about it, but 
I'm in a pulpit and you're in pews, so we're not going to have a discussion, amen? (laughs) But I want to give you a few passages that I believe will help us to understand what that means. I want to read to you a passage out of Malachi chapter number 4. We're at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's the next to last verse in the Old Testament. Verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This was a prophecy given in the Old Testament concerning the children of Israel, that Elijah would walk amongst them again, would do great and mighty works. Now, if you study the book of Revelation, and by the way, if you don't study the book of Revelation, you're missing a scripturally mandated blessing. And uh, in the book of Revelation, we're told about two prophets that'll stand in the latter day and will preach and do great miracles and I'm of the belief that one of those men is Elijah. But we find an interesting passage in Luke chapter 1. We just read it. The Bible says about John the Baptist that he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. And of course, that's a Greek alliteration of the name Elijah. So saying that John the Baptist would function in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, those two verses may be loosely connected in your mind. You may recognize nothing but the name Elijah to be common to it. But in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 11 through 14, as Christ is giving a testimony concerning John the Baptist, He says, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, this is what I want you to get. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Now, that's an astounding passage. The Bible tells us that Elijah would come in a national way to the children of Israel, Uh, directly before the return of our Lord in power and glory to set up His earthly kingdom, as the book of Revelation very clearly and explicitly teaches. But we find that Christ makes the statement that had the children of Israel accepted the testimony of John, that John would have functioned as Elijah to them. Now, you may say, preacher, what does all this mean? And I'm going to try to not uh, put the theological waiters on and go too deep tonight. But do you know we have a sovereign God? Do you know we have a God that works in providence? And a God that has every detail of this life mapped out and He knows what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. Do you know that? But do you also know that we have a God that does not make bluffs and does not try to uh, stare people down, if you will? We have a God that says what He means and means what He says. And so a promise was given that Elijah would come. And the Bible says that if the children of Israel would have accepted him, he would have functioned as Elijah. Why does the Bible teach that? Because the Jews had an opportunity to accept the Messiah. Now, God knew they would not accept the Messiah. But God gave them the same opportunity that He gives you and me. And the Jews had an opportunity. God knew that they wouldn't. But God was not bluffing when He made the promises 
to Israel. It was not God's desire to put away Israel for a time being. I know He's not put them away permanently or cast them off as a people. Uh, But it was not God's desire to do that. But in the providential working of God for the age of grace and the church that would uh, come into being, God knew these things would take place. Now you say, preacher, what does all that mean to me? What that means to me and what it means to you is this. The Bible says that the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to give testimony to Jesus Christ and to prepare a people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, I would propose to you tonight that when we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, do you know that the Lord is coming back? Amen? Do you know that the return of the Lord is imminent? Do you know that it could happen at any moment? And do you know that you and I need to be prepared for the Lord? And in this passage, I believe we have just a few thoughts in the ministry of John the Baptist that apply to our lives because we're waiting for the return of our blessed Lord and Savior. The Bible gives us three things. I'm going to give them to you very shortly tonight. But three areas of life that John the Baptist's ministry was to deal with Three things that were to be changed in the hearts of the children of Israel and in their lives to prepare them for the Lord. And I'd say, first off, that if we're going to be prepared for the Lord to come back, we need to have our heart right with God. Look at what it says there in our text in verse number 16. The Bible says, "...and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God." You see, 400 years of silence had fallen upon the children of Israel. No prophet. No preacher, no one to stand and proclaim the word of the Lord, no open vision. And many of the Jews had uh, in their worship degraded. They had cheapened the word of God. They had fallen into the trap of the oral tradition of the rabbis and the oral tradition of the Talmud and all these various things. And their worship was focused around rabbinical tradition. All through the New Testament, when Christ speaks of the traditions of men, He's not just saying traditions uh, like you and I have. I don't know, Christmas is coming up, you may get the jiffy pop out and sit around with the family and pop popcorn. And that's a tradition that you have. But that's not what Christ is speaking of when He speaks of the traditions of men. But He's speaking of the oral law or the oral history or the oral teachings of the rabbis. Something you need to be careful about today and all believers need to be careful about today. You know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of Jew-centric ministries around. And I believe in reaching the Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that as a nation, America needs to align herself with God's people. I believe that with my whole heart. But let me say this, much of the Bible, quote-unquote, teaching that you'll see on television and in various of these ministries that are focused around unraveling the, quote-unquote, mysteries of the Old Testament, much of the substance that you'll find in them comes from the rabbinical traditions and not from the teachings of the Word of God in the Old Testament. So we need to be careful about that. But we find that John's first priority was a heart priority. The first priority was to see the hearts of the children of Israel turn towards their Lord. Can I tell you tonight that the first thing that every single person needs to do in preparation for the Lord's return is to be saved by the grace of God. 
There's various beliefs about this. And, uh, you know, we're Baptists, so we don't just believe about it, but we box about it. Amen. And we can get in a fight about it later if you want to. But I know the Bible says that those that have not been obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the Antichrist is revealed, and he who letteth uh, is no longer let, and he's taken out of the way, and the one world order is set up in this earth, the Bible says that they'll be given a strong delusion that they'll believe a lie lest they should believe the gospel and lest they should be saved. Now, you believe what you will about it. Uh, I'll probably believe different about it. You get enough Baptists, you get five Baptists in a room, you're going to have six opinions, and one guy probably won't even have an opinion. Amen? But uh, I believe that if the Lord returns and you've not accepted Him by grace, by faith, I believe you've missed an opportunity. Now, you don't have to believe that tonight. We can fight about it later, but uh, I believe that the Bible teaches clearly that if you've been disobedient to the gospel, you'll be given over to a strong delusion. You'll believe a lie. You say, are you saying, uh, preacher, that there won't be anybody saved in the tribulation period? No, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. I'm saying those that have rejected Christ when the Lord returns, I believe they'll stay rejecting Christ because they'll be given over to a strong delusion. I believe every single person needs to be saved. I know every person is not going to be saved. But I'll tell you this, the Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You have loved ones. I have loved ones. Uh, we've got friends, family, co-workers, people in our life that need Christ. And can I tell you that uh, you need not only worry about the grave robbing them of an opportunity, but our Lord could return at any moment. They need to be saved by the grace of God. Let me say that you need to be prepared in salvation, but we also see that you need to be prepared in submission. Having your heart turned to the Lord does not only mean that you're saved, but it means that your heart is given over to Jesus Christ. I believe this is an area of the Christian life that is grossly under-preached. We preach about evangelism, and evangelism's good. And uh, we preach about the Lord's return. The Lord's return is good. We're preaching about it tonight. But very rarely do churches deal with discipleship and submission to the Holy Ghost and submission to the Word of God. Can I say that every single believer that is not 100% submitted to Jesus Christ is living in disobedience? Now, that's not easy to swallow, because if you're like me, there's times in my life when I'm not submitted to God like I should be. But you see, partial obedience is disobedience. There's no other way to cut it. I don't know if you were like I was growing up. You know, every little kid's born just a demon. Did you know that? Every single one of them, they look cute, they look sweet, but they're all just evil to the very core. And I was like that growing up. And, uh, you know, if mom and daddy hadn't whipped it out of me, I would have been one of them kids that... You ever met a kid that just pushed you? Amen? Just, just pushed you. And you'd tell them, you'd say, they'd be sitting down, you know, they'd be laying down kind of like this. And you'd say, son, sit up. They'd... Son, set up. You know, they do everything they can. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to prove to you that you're not running them. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to prove to you that they can do what they want. I've met kids like that. I've been a kid like that, I promise you. When I, I grew up in a Christian school, and I, and I thank God for it. It was good in my life. Uh, and at a Christian school, you know, we had to have our shirts tucked in all the time. Now, to a 13-year-old, that's, that's right up there with waterboarding torture. I mean, that's how bad it is to a 13-year-old, you know? And, and what we'd do is we'd take and we'd, we'd tuck just the hem of our shirt in, you know? And then we'd roll the rest of it. Look, dumb as all get out. I don't know why we did I'll tell you why we did it, because we wanted to aggravate. We wanted to push. We wanted to feel like there was some area of our life that we had control of. You know why? Because our will hadn't been broken yet. Our will hadn't been broken. We wanted to prove that we were in charge. 
You know, believers are like that too. Believers are uh, do the very same thing as children do about it. It's amazing to me, and I know you've heard preachers say this, and I, you know, I've heard them say this too. But isn't it amazing? People can go to a ball game and sit for two hours, and not have to get up. People can't sit through twenty minutes of church without having to go to the bathroom four times. You ever notice that? You ever notice that people find a way to stick and stow money back? I mean, months and months and months and months and months so they can go on vacation. But before the week's up, they've already spent up that tithe. You know, that tithe's already gone. You ever notice that we have the opportunity and the willingness to talk to anybody about anything except for Jesus Christ? It's so easy. It's so easy. You know why that is? Our will's not broken yet. We've not given Him our sword and our will. We've not given Him our submission and our life yet. Listen, if you're going to be pleased at the Lord's coming, it's going to take submission in your life and in mine. That's not a palatable word. And I promise you, my flesh doesn't like it any more than your flesh does. But let me tell you something. If anybody, uh, if anybody has any part of your life that they're running other than God, then God doesn't have all of it. We need to get to a place where we say, Lord, it all belongs to you. God, I'll do anything that you want me to do. It doesn't matter what it is. And, you know, we're scared about that sometimes. You know why we don't trust God? We think if we surrender to God, He's going to send us the mission field. Let me say two things about that. Number one, so what if He does? If it's God's will for your life, it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. And number two, you know that God's not just sitting around trying to figure out ways to torture you. Do you know that? God's not just sitting around trying to figure out ways to mess up your life. In fact, God's will is the greatest path that you'll ever take. If we would get to a place where we're submitted to God, Lord, anything, doesn't matter what it is, every part of my life belongs to you, we'd find we're the happier for it. So we see that we need to be right with God in our heart. But I want you to look at verse 17. The Bible says at the first part of the verse, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. Now, this is unusual. Listen to this. It says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. What does that speak to you? What does that speak to me? Well, it tells me two things. It tells me heretofore the hearts of the fathers had not been turned to the children. They had been turned away from their children. You read this passage, read the context, read other verses that speak of the same thing, and you'll find that what it's saying is that there wasn't enough love in the home. There wasn't enough compassion and care in the home. Let me say, if we're going to be prepared when the Lord comes back, and I'm not saying that your home has to be right for you to be saved, But if we're going to be prepared, if we're going to be pleased at His coming and Him pleased with us, we need to fix our homes, people. We need to fix our homes. There's no other institution in this world that's under more attack today than the home. Do you know that the devil hates the home more than he hates the church? You know why that is? Because the church is constituted of homes. If the devil can destroy homes, he's destroyed the church. And that's what we're seeing today. Most of you remember a time when it was church time, One or two people didn't go to church. The whole family went to church. Wasn't that what happened before? When you was growing up, the whole family piled in the sedan, you know, the big old Buick, the the lead sled, and you all went down the road, and everybody went to church. It was a priority. Now church has become a secondary thing, something we pencil in, we schedule it in. If we've got time for it, that's wonderful. If we don't, well, that's okay. God understands. We're under grace. You know, and by the way, I'm thankful for grace, but what should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid. Our homes need to be right. We need to strengthen homes. Let me tell you how you strengthen a home. And that's by getting Christ and the Bible and prayer right smack dab in the middle of your home. We find that there's two things that are uh, spoken of in this verse. And the first is that homes need to be caring places. 
Now, that's caring that's defined by Scriptures, not caring that's defined by Dr. Phil or Oprah, mind you. There's a difference between the two. True love, defined as the Bible, is pointing others to Christ and showing them through the Word of God what is best for their life. Let me tell you, there's a lot of homes where children are showered with gifts, showered with attentions, and it's a place where there's no love found. Do you know why? Because they see to their every material need while they're on their way to a devil's hell. Isn't that pitiful? But that's the day that we live in. Let me tell you something. If you love your kids and love your grandkids, you'll get them to church. If you love your kids and your grandkids when they do wrong, you'll whip them. If you love your children and your grandchildren, you'll teach them to fear God. If you love your children and love your grandchildren, you'll teach them the Word. Do you know that the home is the chief place of teaching in church life of the Word of God, not the church house? If the Word of God... And I'll tell you what's happened to a lot of homes today. People have outsourced the work of the home to every single venue but the home. Even good Christian homes. Many times the teaching of children, the Word of God in the home is outsourced to Christian education. And I believe in Christian education. I thank God for it. But the Christian education is no substitute for a lack of Christ in the home. I've seen it over and over. I've been in Christian schooling. I've worked with Christian school kids. I've worked. I've known homeschool people. I've been around it my whole life. And I can tell you this. People look at it and they say, well, I don't know what went wrong with my kids. We put them through that school and we put all that money into it. I don't know what. I'll tell you what happened. If Christ isn't at the center of everything, it's all to no avail. All to no avail. There's people who can't afford Christian education. What are they to do? Well, let me give you a very simple solution to this. There is nothing that Christian schooling, Christian education can do in the home to make up for what's not in the home. There's nothing that public education can do to undo what's in the home if it's done right. The home is the backbone and the centerpiece of our everyday life. It's the people we love and cherish and spend our most time with. What consists of your home? Well, we find that the home has to be caring, and that means, number two, that it has to be Christ-centered. Let me tell you something. Christ should be the very centerpiece of your home. What Christ thinks about any matter should be the number one opinion in your home. Go out and buy a movie. I know y'all aren't spiritual. You don't go buy movies. I know that. But I'm carnal, and I go buy movies sometimes. And uh, I'll tell you the number one way to determine whether you need to buy a movie. Would Christ sit and watch this with me? What about music? I know y'all are spiritual. You don't listen to secular music. I know that. Okay, I understand that. I like a little Hank Williams every now and then. You're going to have to forgive me, okay? I'm carnal. I know that. Would Christ... Is this anti-scriptural? Is it against the Word of God? Does it turn my children's hearts and minds away from Jesus Christ? Not everything that's secular is sinful. Not everything that's uh, quote-unquote spiritual is really spiritual. The acid test for what you allow in your home ought to be what the Word of God says about it. Would the Holy Spirit be pleased with the presence of this in my home? What about the schedules in our homes? Homes are a busier place now than it seems like they've ever been, you know? Uh, there's people have to put up calendars and schedules on their wall just to keep up where everybody's at at one time. Uh, the kids are here, they're there. The parents are here, they're there. All people going every single direction. But I wonder this, schedule-wise, what's the centerpiece of your home? One of the things I'm greatly thankful for, and it's something I strive in my life and fail at on a consistent basis, but it's something that we all need to make a focal point in our life. I'm thankful that my mother and father, every single night, I mean, I could count on one hand the times that I was home and this did not happen. We'd gather around and we'd sit and we'd read the Bible. 
You say, your parents read the Bible with you? Yes, they did, and I rise up and I call them blessed. It made a difference in my life. You say, preacher, you've never had kids. You don't know, but I've been one. And I know the difference that godly parents can make in your life because I know the difference it made in my life. Christ ought to be the centerpiece of your home. Uh, things of God ought to be the centerpiece of your home. And if our homes are not right, our children won't be right. If our homes are not right, our churches won't be right. If our homes are not right, this nation will not be right. It begins at the home. We must strengthen our home. Let me give you a third thing and I'll hush. I want to say that we need to be right with God in our heart and in our home. But look at the end of verse 17. The Bible says, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. I want to say that in our holiness, we need to be right with God. You know that the Christian life, it's, it's an inward thing. I understand that. It's us abiding in Christ, Christ abiding with us. I understand that. But let me say that no one that is right with God on the inside is wrong with God on the outside. There's people that are wrong with God on the inside that look right with God on the outside, but no one that is right with God on the inside is wrong with God on the outside. You think God's so weak that He can change a man's soul, but He can't change a man's appearance and a man's lifestyle? You think God's so weak that He can change and save a man and wash him white as snow? But he can't change where he goes and what he does. Christianity, listen, all the testimonies, all the shouting, all the praises in the world don't mean a thing if they're not backed up by a clean, holy, sanctified life. We're missing this in our churches today. We're finding two polar opposites. And this may not mean a lot to many of you here. I know sometimes we get uh, kind of capsulated with where we're at. But we're finding in the fundamental movement and in, in biblically sound churches that some are going so far in the formalistic direction that it's killing the spiritual life of their people. And some are going so far in the emotional, I did not say spiritual, I said the emotional direction, that it's killing their church members. You say, preacher, you're telling me you're against things being formal? No, if people wanted them a little more formal around here, I'd have to get used to it, amen. I'm the last thing from formal, but if everybody wanted to, you know, sit around and, and uh, sing those highbrow church songs, I guess I'd put up with it, amen. Uh, better than contemporary. Yeah, I made somebody mad, amen. But better than that. And, uh, you know, of course, we're more on the camp meeting side of things anyway. I don't know that we could get much more beans and cornbread than we are right now unless we just, uh, you know, came in here with a washboard and a gut bucket. But... Uh, you know, I, I understand those things are not intrinsically wrong. But let me, and I'm not against emotions either. God made us as emotional creatures. Uh, but let me also say that if things are not founded in a spiritual manner, and nobody, it doesn't matter how much show they put on, if it's not backed up by a spiritual walk with Christ, it means nothing. It might mean something to their church. It might mean something to the people that see them, the people that are around them. But it means nothing to God. It's just sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. How much do I love God? How do I find that out? Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Very simple test that Christ puts upon the Christian life. How do we know if we love God like we ought to? Do you keep His commandments? You say, I keep them most of the time. Then you love Him most of the time. Say, I keep Him about half the time. Then you love Him about half the time. You say, preacher, are you saying, I don't love God when I'm not being obedient? No, I understand you have an emotional affinity and uh, attachment and loyalty to the Lord, but you're not expressing love to the Godhead 
unless you're obeying Him. That's the only way we express it. People might say, well, he's a good fellow, but you know, he just don't go to church. Well, he might be a good fellow, but he's not right with God if he doesn't. People say, oh, well, you know, he's, he's a good fellow, but he just don't read his Bible. Well, he might be a good fellow, but he's not right with God if he doesn't. Now, there's a lot of churches that won't tell you this, a lot of preachers that won't tell you this, and the reason why is because it might hurt their giving, or it might hurt their numbers, or it might hurt their this, that, or the other. But I want to be truthful with you tonight. And I want to tell you that you measure your love for Christ by how obedient you are to Him. That's how you measure it. You say, I want to love Christ more. Obey Him more. You say, I want to fall in love with Jesus all over again. And fall on your knees in obedience all over again. You'll find many times we get the cart before the horse. And you know, the the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes we want to walk by sight and not by faith. And sight would dictate that God's going to cause us to love Him before we obey Him. But that's not faith. Faith is to say, well, I'm not happy, but I'm going to trust God's Word and obey Him in faith and let Him be my portion. Well, I'm discouraged. Well, I'm going to put my faith in God and be obedient and serve Him anyway, and I'm going to trust that He'll satisfy me and give me the encouragement. That's faith. That's what we walk by. We don't walk by sight. Hey, friend, I like it when people shout, but we don't even walk by shouting. We walk by faith. Are you exercising your faith on a day-to-day basis? I tell you, it's sad. Most of us, our faith muscles so atrophied, we can't even get it out of bed in the morning. Most of us, it's been so long since we've ever had to actually trust God for anything that many of us have forgotten how. But there'll come a day in my life. There'll come a day in your life. I don't say this to bully you or to scare you. I I, I say it to be real with you. I say it to be truthful with you. There'll come a day when you'll sit by a bedside and watch someone slip into eternity and you'll have to have faith. There'll come a day when you'll get that phone call and have to rush to the hospital with an ambulance beating you there and you'll have to have faith at that point. In our day-to-day life, we're so comfortable, most of the time we don't have to have faith in most things. Most of the time, we know where every meal's coming from. We know our bills are going to be paid. Most of the time, we, we know that uh, we're saved, and uh, many times the majority of our loved ones are saved. There's nothing that's really burdening us. And I don't wish anyone ill. I don't wish anyone to have a more difficult life. But I will say that sometimes that can be a negative thing because we don't cast ourselves upon the rock of Jesus Christ. But when we really, in those darkest times, find what faith... Faith means you quit going to other options. That's what faith means. Now, you say faith is when you run out of any plan B's. But truthfully, you can have faith before you're at that place. Faith is when you're casting yourself completely upon God. Lord, I'm going to trust you. I've got no reason in this world to trust you. But I'm not of this world. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. Vance Havner used to say that It's a disservice to Christians to feel like this world is their home and they're trying to uh, gain a citizenship in heaven. They're citizens of this earth trying to make it to heaven. No, friend, we're citizens of heaven making it through this world. And as we live day to day, it's a life of faith. It's a life of growing in Christ. And if we're not growing, we're dying. And so I wonder tonight, in your walk with Christ, 
Are there areas of your life? And you're going to make a decision. We all make decisions. We're not one of them churches that's going to drag you down the aisle and throw you on the altar and uh, hold your head down and make you pray. You're going to make a decision. We're all going to make a decision tonight. But I'd ask you this. Is there some area of your life where you're not submitted to Christ like you should? Hey, you've been having them arguments with Him like I have sometimes? <laughs> Isn't it funny that we argue with God? I'm guilty of it, though. I'm guilty of it. Have you been having one of them arguments with God? Have you been fighting Him over something? Maybe there's some area of your life that God dealt with you a long time ago about, but you felt like it was just impossible to give it over to Him. And so all these years, it's not that God doesn't love you, it's not that God hasn't dealt with you and worked with you, but all these years that's been a wedge between you and Christ. Something in between your soul and the Savior. I bet tonight, in fact, I know tonight that if you've come to this old-fashioned altar, if you pray and ask God to take it away, Submit your life to Him. Not a part of it. When you go to an altar and you submit a part of your life, you've not submitted your life. But lay it all down and say, Lord, it all belongs to You. Every bit of it. It's all Yours. I promise you Christ will forgive you and give you the strength to serve Him. I promise you you'll leave this place at peace with God.